2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When you become the poet laureate of the United States, you are basically the ambassador to the world of beautiful words. And there might be no better person for the gig than Ada Limon. Her poems use clear, everyday language. But you know, diamonds are made from carbon, and her poems have as much literary heft as they do accessibility. Limon also happens to be a Sonoma County native, and though she lives among the hills and horses of Kentucky now, We're proud to claim her as our own. We'll talk with her about her new post as Poet Laureate, have her teach us how to read a poem, and hear her speak her work as a Friday treat. Stay tuned for a special hour of Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Ada Limon has written a half dozen books of poetry. Her most recent is The Hurting Kind and The Carrying won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Poetry. She has many other awards, and she is, of course, the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States. Welcome to the show, Ada Limon.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure.
2: So we mentioned you're a Sonoma native, and we need to start with you, 15-year-old Ada Limon, walking Mm -hmm. up to a new bookshop in Sonoma where you were living, <laughs> and asking for a job. The bookshop was Reader's Books, and Andy Weinberger, one of the people who owned the shop, described your time at the shop like this. Ada stayed with us through high school. I like to think that we matured together, that her enthusiasm and humor and charm and love of language provided the perfect mix for our customers to see who we were, who we aspired to be as booksellers. I also knew, even then, that Ada was destined for more than Reader's Books. Not to get too metaphorical about it, but everything she touched invariably turned to gold. Every time she stepped up to the plate, she hid it out of the park. Is that how you remember being a late teen <laughs> there uh in Sonoma?
3: Oh, well how beautiful that uh that you interviewed Andy. That's wonderful. Um you know it's so funny because of course i remember being awkward and um emotionally raw and um driven by um sort of the madness of the hormonal 15 year old uh, needs desires and wants um so i love that uh that someone saw me at 15 as being a mature and mm-hmm. um you know language loving young person that was working at the bookshop because mm-hmm. of course in my heart, I, I felt like a mess.
2: And what was that bookshop to you? Is that where you first saw poets read? Is that just like where you were just surrounded by words?
3: Yeah, it was really um, a, just a wonderful experience. And it, it was true. I walked across the street and I said, hey, listen, I live right there <laughs> <laughs> and I'll never be late. <laughs> um and you know, we got to hear wonderful readers come by. I was the I was the person that would you know sell the books and help help with the signing table and help set up the chairs and make sure the reader had water by their side, et cetera. Um, and so I got to hear amazing writers, um, the local writers like Carolyn Kaiser who read there, um, Earl LeClaire, um, my stepfather read there, who's a short story writer, and there were a lot of um, just wonderful people that came through. And at one point, there was actually the um, the uh, Sonoma Valley Poetry Festival um, that was centered around the bookstore. And that's where I first got to hear Phil Levine read and uh, Sharon Olds and just some of the most amazing mentors and, you know, yeah. ancestors, poets. Yeah.
2: It was that place for you. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, oh, it really was. Uh, what about your Sonoma now? You come back to us sometimes, right?
3: I do. I actually am very lucky. I have friends that um, have property up on Moon Mountain. And um, in 2010, they uh, gave me a little apartment on their property and uh, I still call it home. So I get to go back whenever I want. My parents still live in Sonoma um, and I have a lot of dear friends that still live there.
2: Ah, Well, I was hoping you could read us an early work to start. It's called The Russian River. Um, And it's from your 2010 collection, I believe. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is kind of, well, why don't you set it up?
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a true story. Um, And (laughs) this is um, definitely, for me, the epitome of growing up in the Sonoma Valley. uh, That sort of late summer heat, uh, driving to the Russian River uh, from Sonoma, and, of course, being in love. The Russian River. In the 1973 Ford LTD, we took Highway 12 and headed toward the wild Russian River. It was the summer of our final year of high school, and we were all so stoned that the world was perfectly defined by goodness and realness, and the opposite of those. It was 98 degrees, and even with the windows open, it was hard to breathe. Outside of Guerneville, we found the party, beautiful bodies jumping off the cliffs into the deepest part, a raft of natural naked women floating like an old cigarette ad down the current. I was going to marry you. Hours into the afternoon, we swam to each other and walked up river. I remember thinking, this was what life was and what I had always wanted outside by the river being pressed on a warm flat rock as if our wet imprint there would matter as if to say i'm holding on i'm holding on
2: Mm. that was the russian river edely reading that from her 2010 collection is there a song you associate with that time in your life
3: you know i think that uh at the time i say at the time i still do this i um am obsessed with uh fleetwood mac <laughs> and i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure i we were listening to fleetwood mac in in the car which i know is you know the 1970s but um but that's what we were listening to in the 1973 ford ltd
2: Oh, man, that's so, it's so, I mean, I I wanted to start there because that does feel like such a Northern California experience. I mean, it's like why people move here, basically, to have a moment like that. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, in a a 2008 essay, you kind of were talking, you were living in New York by then, and you were kind of Mm -hmm. pondering regional poetry and asking Mm -hmm. if you were, in fact, a poet of Sonoma. And then you said, I think I would claim myself a California poet. Ouch. This definition is too tight, and it smells like old wine. Do you mm. do you see yourself the longer you've gone on as a as a Sonoma poet, California? You do return to our our place here,
3: yeah. And to be honest, I think that the place I feel the most home still to this, you know, in this moment, uh, right now, if you ask me where I feel most at home, it is in Sonoma. Um, it does feel like a place that not only I. Um, was born and raised, but also a place where I deeply belong. Um, But I also feel like there is a part of me that now that I've lived, you know, so many different places, and right now I'm in Kentucky, and I do feel like there's this sort of sense that I belong to America. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, you are the poet laureate, so in a a
2: technical (laughs) sense, um, yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is true. I think the landscape of the United States is something that I really feel connected to. And now that I've lived so many places in it, I I feel like I can speak to that a little bit. Um, but yes, Sonoma definitely still feels like home.
2: I mean, Kentucky, your Kentucky work seems to like focus on the things that are so different from Sonoma, you know, like mm-hmm. the... The amount of water, the moisture, the profusion of greens. <laughs> Do you feel like being, you know, coming from these different places, living in these different places, that those contrasts uh, stick out more?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that I really love about... Um, being in different places even just traveling uh is that idea of getting to know the natural elements in each place mm-hmm. uh when i first arrived in kentucky i was actually really hoping to move back to california permanently and then i fell madly in love and married my husband and i live in kentucky and have learned to just you know love it but i think the way that i know to love something or how i can you know figure that out is to explore the natural landscape around me. And so a lot of the poems in the book Bright Dead Things are about me really figuring out the landscape around me and Mm -hmm. looking at, you know, the old barns and um, the, uh, the incredible horse pastures everywhere and all the horses. And I think that was important to me to figure out, you know, how to love a place is to name the plants and animals that I'm surrounded by. Mm
2: Let's have you read another poem about Northern California. It's not just about Northern California. Um, Let's have you read a good story. This is from your most recent collection.
3: Yeah, this is a story um, that I think are a poem. I should say it's a poem, (laughs) but it's a a poem that began for me um, at a place where I feel like uh, there were so many poems that were dealing with trauma. And I think it's, incredibly important that we write and read poems that are hard and that deal with the hard things. But I also really wanted to write about tenderness and be grateful for those moments that tenderness was offered to me. Um, And so this is where that poem came from. A Good Story. Some days, dishes piled in the sink, books littering the coffee table are harder than others. Today, my head is packed with cockroaches, dizziness, and everywhere it hurts. Venom in the jaw, behind the eyes, between the blades. Still, the dog is snoring on my right, the cat on my left. Outside, all those red buds are just getting good. I tell a friend, the body is so body, and she nods. I used to like the darkest stories the bleak snippets someone would toss out about just how bad it could get. My stepfather told me a story about when he lived on the streets as a kid, how he'd some nights sleep under the grill at a fast food restaurant until both he and his buddy got fired. I used to like that story for some reason, something in me that believed in overcoming. But right now, all I want is, is a story about human kindness. The way once, when I couldn't stop crying because I was 15 and heartbroken, he came in and made me eat a small pizza he'd cut up into tiny bites until the tears stopped. Maybe I was just hungry, I said. And he nodded, holding out the last piece.
2: That was Italy Mon reading a good story from her most recent poetry collection. Such a good poem. And I want you to talk about the craft of that when we come back from the break. It, it's just a beautiful thing. It made me think of a time my sister's ex-husband who silently made me a bowl of macaroni and cheese while I cried mm. on my sister's lap. And I still remember it as one of the kindest things anyone has ever done. There's something about that uh, kind of caretaking. Uh, we're talking with Ada Limon, uh, Sonoma native and author of six volumes of poetry. She is the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States, and we would love to hear from you. Is there a poem by Ada Limon that's really stuck with you? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866 866-733- 733 Six seven eight six, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at KQED.org. More Italy Moan after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're delighted to be talking this morning with Ada Limon, Sonoma native and also 24th Poet Laureate of the United States. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if there's a poem by Ada Limon that's stuck with you or a book of her poetry that's that's really worked for you and changed the way you thought, you give us a call, 866-733-6786. Uh, Ada, before the break, uh, you read a good story this uh, which uh, uh, which is a beautiful poem that is kind of the meaning of it is sort of plain at the top right there's this moment of kindness there's this sense of of caretaking but how do you make that you know pizza cut into tiny slices at the end that's offered to you by your stepfather how, what are the sort of what's the literary infrastructure that makes that pack such a punch <laughs>
3: Yeah, the poem is, thank you, by the way, thank you for that. Um, The poem is in couplets, and um, there are actually long lines in the poem uh, that sort of allow for it to move a little faster. Um, The line length of a poem really determines the rhythm and speed of how the poem is read. A shorter line is going to be um, much slower, if you think sort of Emily Dickinson. Etc. So that's going to read much slower because it's got the breath in it, right? So you would that slight pause after the line break is going to make you read it slower. And then a longer line is going to read a little faster. Um, you can think of Whitman. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the sort of the mid length line is more for conversation. Um, you can think actually Shakespeare. Um, So I feel like this is a poem that's written in a little bit of a mid-length to a longer line. So it's meant to read a little fast, but then at the same time, it's in couplets. So you're going to break after each of those couplets, which gives you that little moment of pause. So it it has that sort of rhythm that goes back and forth. The last line is then on its own, which kind of allows for it to stand out a little bit. Mm. Um, and I'll say that uh, the other part of it is that in this um, poem, you know one of the things I think about this poem is that it's it's dealing with time. And I had a student one time ask me, how is it that you can go from the present moment into the past or into the future so easily in your poems? And I said, well, this is going to sound weird, but I think uh, time doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) And um, (laughs) But I did feel like there is a moment in this poem where I do take us back to it, right? I say, my stepfather told me a story, right? And then he does this thing. But at the same time, it does feel like it's happening in the present moment. Because you have this like, oh, this is a hard day. It begins with a hard day. Mm-hmm. And what does the hard day require? The hard day requires a good story, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes that good story isn't something that's happening now, but maybe it's a memory. Like you were talking about, mm-hmm. you're uh, the person that that fed you Macaroni while Macaroni cheese. <laughs> yes. Comfort food, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something about that kindness um, that I feel like sometimes doesn't get praised. I think we Praise people so much for courage and bravery and strength, and sometimes not for tenderness, and um, I think we need to praise that more.
2: I mean, that's one of the crucial themes of your latest book, right? The hurting kind.
3: Mm, very much so. Very much so. And
2: in in that work, how do you how do you think about celebrating the the ability to hold grief or the ability to to hurt? Like, how how does one actually do that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot um, and I feel like oftentimes when we come to a poem, um, it's not even so much that we have to feel a certain thing, right? Like uh, you don't have to feel exactly what I want you to feel after a poem I've read or a poem I've given you by somebody else. But maybe the important thing is just that you feel, period. And maybe that is something that we need to tap into. Because I think, I mean, I know know for me this is true, that um, we've just become so numb (laughs) to so much because there's just so much chaos and crisis in the world that it feels like every one of us is just sort of being shoved from you know, one emergency (laughs) to the next. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course we have to compartmentalize and of course we have to go numb a little bit, but I think that there's a real danger in that. And there's a real danger in, in living without feeling, um, and swallowing everything to become sort of courageous and resilient. And listen, I love the word resilient, you know, and (laughs) I want to be resilient, but sometimes I think we also need to be a mess. And I think, um, we need to feel and sob and, and maybe have someone, you know, give us macaroni and cheese while we cry. And I think, (laughs) I think those are really important moments. And, um, I think it's what makes us human. And I think it also is what makes us able to find strength, right? Like there is a power in that. Like that moment when you break down, that moment when you feel all the feelings and it feels like too much. That's important because that's where we get the courage to go on and, you know, maybe pursue the action that we need to, to see in the world. Um, but I do think we need to make space for, for breathing, for for falling apart, for crying, um, and for grieving those that we lost. Because I think, you know, we just, we move on so quickly. We're asked to move on so quickly. And I think sometimes we aren't supposed to. Do
2: you want to read a a poem of your own pick that you feel like gets at this theme of sort of allowing for this kind of space?
3: Yeah. You know, um, this is a longer poem. um, That's actually the, the, A titular poem of the book, The Hurting Kind. But what I'll do, since it's so long, I'll just read a section of it, um, which is the last section. Um, But I feel like it gets to the idea of grieving and also the idea of the ongoingness of missing people. Mm. Um, So it's the last section. Six. You can't sum it up, a life. I feel it moving through me, that snake, his horse Midge, sturdy and nothing special, traveling the canyons and the tumbleweeds, hunting for rabbits before the war. My grandmother, picking peaches, sealing the fruit from the orchards as she walked home. No one said it was my job to remember. I took no notes, though I've stared too long. My grandfather before he died, would have told anyone that could listen that he was ordinary, that his life was a good one. Simple. He could never understand why anyone would want to write it down. He would tell you straight up he wasn't brave. And my grandmother would tell you right now that he is busy getting the house ready for her, visiting now each night and even doing the vacuuming. I imagine she's right. It goes on and on, their story. They met in first grade in a one-room schoolhouse. I could have started their story there, but it is endless and ongoing. All of this is a conjuring. I will not stop reporting of, sorry, I will not stop this reporting of attachments. There is evidence everywhere. There's a tree over his grave now, and soon her grave too, though she is tough and says, If I ever die, which is marvelous, and maybe why she's still alive, I see the tree above the grave and think, I'm wearing my heart on my leaves, my heart on my leaves. Love ends. But what if it doesn't?
2: But what if it doesn't? That was the last section of The Hurting Kind, the poem inside the the book, Uh, The Hurting Kind. Um, This is such a beautiful story about your grandparents. Uh, I assume it's also, you know, based based on truth, based in your life.
3: It is. It is. Yes. The speaker is me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. How...
2: How how have you come to interpret, like, when you think of your ancestors, like, w- what goes in that category of ancestor for you?
3: Yeah, you know, I think it's, that's a great question, because I think there's so many people that have come before us and so many people that have allowed us to do what we do, um, that it's not always bloodlines, right? Mm-hmm. Like, some of those ancestors are artists that have risked everything to make art. Um, that have chosen the difficult path, uh, that have managed to survive during really hard times just to create something beautiful. I think those people are ancestors too. Um, I also think of ancestors as plants and animals. Uh, I think of, there, there, I feel like there are trees in my life that are ancestors, um, that are family. And uh, yeah, so I, I love that question because I feel like There's so much that, um, has had to happen for us to have this one life. And every day I feel very grateful that that has happened. So I can experience this moment, this breath, you know?
2: I mean, so many of your poems, it feels like the river you grew up by, the creek you grew up by in Sonoma, it like raised you in some way, (laughs) you know, I was thinking about the poem you wrote about the raccoon decomposing in the water with its little hand eventually turning to bone.
3: And yeah. just the, the
2: the lesson of that in it,
3: yeah, that's the Calabasas Creek in Glen Ellen. Yeah, that was that creek is really important to me. In fact, someone asked me one time where my poems come from. And I thought, that, that creek. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was my first thought was, oh, it's the Calabasas Creek. And there's something about that um, that area that's also because it's underneath um, Arnold Drive. There's this also part of it of like, oh, the creek running under something. And I think sometimes with poetry, Mm. we're looking for the voice under the voice, Mm. right? It's not just the voice, but the thing underneath it. And that creek was underneath. Uh, Life was all happening up above. You know, the cars were going from, you know, the job and school and all of that. Mm -hmm. You could feel the rush. But there, it was quiet. It was small. There were, you know, the little crawdads and little minnows. And there was all this life happening. But it was like a secret life. And I think oftentimes my poems begin there.
2: Mm. Your poems have taken you many, many places. And I do feel like we need to at least touch on the fact that you are now the, the poet laureate. I mean, is, is it actually feel like a job? Like, do you have an email address poet laureate at usa.gov? Like, is it like that?
3: <laughs> I love that. Um, I, not that I know of, it would be amazing if, uh, if I did No, I do not have an email address that, uh, that has that, but I do, I will say this, that, um, the incredible Librarian of Congress, Dr. Carla Hayden, called me in June and said, you know, it was a Zoom call with her team. And she said, I would like to invite you to be the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States. And I think my whole heart left my body at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kept feeling like, oh, you know, this is a mistake or, you know, this is, this is something that happens to other people. It doesn't happen to me. Uh, And then once my heart sort of returned to my body, I thought, Oh, this is, (laughs) this is, I'm here and I need to answer and I need to, you know, and I'll say yes. (laughs) And, um, and then one of the things that was really marvelous is that I had never been to the library of Congress. Have you been? Mm, Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. So I had never been, um, I'd only been to DC a few times and, um, You know, a lot of people don't know a lot about it, but it is the largest library in the world and Mm -hmm. it's an incredible space. And so I had this opportunity to go from all the different reading rooms and see some exquisite items and books and talk to these librarians that are just this incredible wealth of knowledge. And at one moment um, in one of the reading rooms and special collections, they brought out Walt Whitman's handwritten notebook um, where he was writing crossing the Brooklyn Ferry. And it was exceptional. I just kept thinking, oh, this is his little notebook <laughs> and his writing is perfect. And, you know, of course that poem is epic and famous and gorgeous. And he was there, you know, he's, and he's, and he, you can tell he's actually on the ferry and he's mm. writing these lines. And um, it's just, these are the kind of things that that library is is made up of and uh it just felt like oh it's not just about you know this idea of being the poet laureate uh, and certainly it's not about me but it's about the service of the library and it's about the service mm. of poetry um and the legacy of poetry and it really made me feel like i was part of something larger um <laughs> the largest library in the world <laughs> <laughs>
2: Maybe this is the moment to have you read uh, one of your most well-known poems, "A New National Anthem."
3: Oh yes, be happy to. And I'll just say this: that um, my dog has started to snore. So if you hear <laughs> her, I just, um, you know, I love that the last poem had it in it, and and now she's, I feel like she's just wants to, you know, she wants to be part of this interview. So. <clears throat> A New National Anthem The truth is, I've never cared for the national anthem. If you think about it, it's not a good song. Too high for most of us, with the rocket's red glare, and then there are the bombs. Always, always, there is war and bombs. Once, I sang it at homecoming, and through even the tenacious high school band off-key, but the song didn't mean anything, just a call to the field, something to get through before the pummeling of youth. And what of the stanzas we never sing, the third that mentions no refuge could save the hireling and the slave. Perhaps the truth is, every song of this country has an unsung third stanza. Something brutal snaking underneath it, as we absent-mindedly sing the high notes with a beer sloshing in the stands, hoping our team wins. Don't get me wrong, I do like the flag, how it undulates in the wind like water, elemental, and best when it's humbled, brought to its knees, clung to by someone who has lost everything, when it's not a weapon when it flickers, when it folds up so perfectly you can keep it until it's needed, until you can love it again, until the song in your mouth feels like sustenance. A song where the notes are sung by even the ageless woods, the short grass plains, the Red River Gorge, the fistful of land left unpoisoned. That song that's our birthright, that's sung in silence when it's too hard to go on, That sounds like someone's rough fingers weaving into another's. That sounds like a match being lit in an endless cave. The song that says, my bones are your bones and your bones are my bones. And isn't that enough?
2: That was a new national anthem by Ada Limon who joins us this morning. Uh, before we go to the break, do you want to say anything about that? We can come back and talk about the relationship of this to, to politics and poetry, but do you want to add any context to that poem?
3: Yeah. I mean, I think that sometimes it is very difficult to love a country. <laughs> um, and if you've traveled, that's true of so many people in so many countries. Um, and I think that uh, at a time when I was finding it very difficult to love this country, I um, I could always be reminded of two things, and that's the land and the people.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's what that poem is is pointing to. It's a way of loving.
2: We're talking with Ada Lamon, Sonoma native and author of six volumes of poetry. She is now the 24th Poet Laureate of the United States, the first to love our creeks and wilderness as a native of the bay area stay tuned for more with her right after the break
0: support for forum comes from san francisco opera
2: welcome back to forum i'm alexis madrigal we are talking with Ada lumone sonoma native and author of six volumes of poetry she's the 24th poet laureate of the united states um we had a request from a listener um to have you read how to triumph like a girl um, would it be okay if you if you read that for that person <laughs>
3: I would be happy to. I just literally put my dog on my lap because she started barking, (laughs) but I think she started barking at the cat. So, you know, this is just... It's 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 good. I love because
2: they show up in your poetry, too. So now I can just imagine them. You know, sometimes they're quiet. Sometimes they're snoring. And I I think that's fine.
3: I mean, if a horse walks into my office, I am going to be a little (laughs) confused. But yes, they are here. Um, Yeah, no, I'd be happy to read How to Triumph uh, Like a Girl. Um, Here it is. How to Triumph like a girl. I like the lady horses best, how they make it all look easy, like running 40 miles per hour is as fun as taking a nap or grass. I like their lady horse swagger after winning. Ears up, girls, ears up. But mainly, let's be honest, I like that they're ladies, as if this big, dangerous animal is also a part of me, that somewhere inside the delicate skin of my body, there pumps an eight pound female horse heart, giant with power, heavy with blood. Don't you want to believe it? Don't you want to lift my shirt and see the huge beating genius machine that thinks, no, it knows it's going to come in first.
2: That was How to Triumph Like a Girl, Ada Limon, joining us this morning reading some of her poems. I, I have to ask, were you a horse girl growing up? I feel like there's a category of little girl who just, <laughs> uh, my daughter is turning into one, who just love horses. And it feels like, could this be what's inside that, you know, uh, very sweet, benign seeming thing of like wanting to be with horses in some capacity?
3: Yeah, I love that. I I have always loved animals and I loved horses, but I never rode. And so I, and I didn't, but we did have horses that were next door to us, um, in the house in Glen Ellen, that I would go visit. And I loved bringing carrots to them. Um, (laughs) and they were at our, our neighbor Evie, um, had, you know, she, she had enough property that people would board their horses with her. Um, So I wasn't a horse girl in the sense that I didn't ride or, you know, compete or doing any of those wonderful things. But, um, but I did, but I always loved them.
2: Your mother too had a kind of special relationship with horses too, right? Like she, yeah, she was very confident with these horses.
3: Yes. My mother, um, when I was 17, um, I actually moved to Germany with my boyfriend and, um, my mom and stepfather moved to, um, a ranch in Sonoma where they were, or she was the caretaker. Uh, it was a 40 acre ranch that specifically uh, looked after retired police horses from the San Francisco police department. And, you know, part of the rule was that they were never allowed to be ridden again. And they just kind of got to live their, their, their days out in peace and, and happiness. And it, they were really wonderful quarter horses, um, super kind and mellow Uh and my mom was just incredible with them. I was a little, you know, they, the horses are terrifying on some they're levels. Powerful. They're powerful, huge. They're powerful. They're huge. Um, they're massive. And to watch my mom move among them was really incredible. Um, she rides horses and was just just at ease and uh, so confident. And I've always sort of envied that. Um, hopefully, someday I'll be like that with them.
2: You know, I feel like in some of your poems, the horses kind of stand in for the 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 chasm that exists between us and other beings. Sometimes, like mm-hmm. yes. the the, the, poem I'm th- the poem I'm thinking about, which the name is escaping me, where you talk about your mother handling horses, so it has yeah. that feel of like
3: intimacy. Do, yeah,
2: dude, yeah. in, in, intimate, but also like they are another beast. They are another creature. They yeah. there is a gap there between you know self and other
3: hmm I think that that's something that um, I think about a lot, and it's definitely present in The Hurting Kind, of that idea that we think we know each other, <laughs> even <laughs> as human animals, right? Mm-hmm. And we think we know what the non-human animal is up to. And there's so much mystery there. There's so much unknown, not only in the animal and plant world, but also within each other, mm-hmm. Um and I think sometimes we need to acknowledge that mystery, because even in our search for meaning and our search for a connection, there's always going to be something that uh, that keeps us separated. And maybe there's a little beauty in that, too. Mm.
2: You know, and in that gap between people, people like to try to read things onto you. Um, mm. And in particular, given, you know, your Mexican descent, first Latina mm-hmm. poet laureate, I thought maybe you could read a poem that kind of tries to address that. The contract says we'd like the conversation to be bilingual uh this is from the carrying
3: yes i'd be happy to um
2: feel free to set it up too if there are things you. yeah
3: i was gonna say that this is um i think this poem for me uh is about the difference between feeling uh I guess the difference between representation and tokenism, mm-hmm. and the difference in how you can actually feel that as a person, as an artist, um, moving through the world, and when when those things sort of cross a line, you can feel it. And so this is mm-hmm. this is this poem. Mm-hmm. The contract says we'd like the conversation to be bilingual. When you come, bring your brownness. So we can be sure to please the funders. Will you check this box? We're applying for a grant. Do you have any poems that speak to troubled teens? Bilingual is best. Would you like to come to dinner with the patrons and sip Patron? Will you tell us the stories that make us uncomfortable, but not complicit? Don't read us the one where you are just like us. Born to a greenhouse, garden, don't tell us how you picked some tomatoes and ate them in the dirt, watching vultures pick apart another bird's bones in the road. Tell us the one about your father stealing hubcaps after a colleague said that's what his kind did. Tell us how he came to the meeting wearing a poncho and tried to sell the man his hubcaps back. Don't mention your father was a teacher spoke English, loved making beer, loved baseball. Tell us again about the poncho, the hubcaps, how he stole them, how he did the thing he was trying to prove he didn't do. And I'll just say that there's sort of two stories in that poem. Um, And one of them, of course, is that idea of of being asked someplace where you realize you are just there to check a box Mm -hmm. um, and not because of your art, not because they've read you or are celebrating Mm -hmm. you, but instead that you have an accent over the O. And so they want to, (laughs) you know, (laughs) bring you in. And then the other uh, story of that poem, is a true story, uh, about my father who, when he was working at a specific school district, a colleague had said he didn't want to park his car near this school because the Mexicans there would steal his hubcap. And, um, my father being Mexican went out and stole the man's hubcaps. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> mean, that then, is a pretty
2: good story. I can see. Where it's a pretty
3: amazing something. story. And so then he came back in dressed in a poncho and a sombrero and did this whole kind of thing wow. like, Oh, do you want to, you want to buy your hubcaps back? And he made this such an incredible point, um, that actually when he retired from that specific school district, um, they gave him an a, a engraved hubcap because he just shifted everyone's mindset. Wow. And um, so, you know, the poem is, is also uh, honoring him in, in some way. Yeah. I mean,
2: in this new role as poet laureate, though, do you feel like you have to perform yourself and perform yourself in certain ways? Like, how do you feel about being being not just Ada Limon, but... Italy Limon, Poet Laureate, the first <laughs> Latina Poet Laureate, you know, how, how do you feel about like?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I think that it's easy to feel that way. <laughs> and I think <laughs> that people will ask that of me. Um, But I really hope I stay true to me and who I am as an authentic human being, full of complex emotions and identities and desires and needs and... Um, Poems, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I, I hope I stay true to that because I, I, if I want to perform anything, it's a poem, mm-hmm. and it's not an identity. Mm-hmm.
2: You know, in the first poem or uh, second poem you read for us, you know, you had this incredible line: "The body is so body." Mm-hmm. Um, and through your life, right, you've you've had a few different sort of physical conditions that have conditioned you to to think about pain in your body in certain ways. Mm-hmm. How do you think that has sort of infused that your identity to have been dealing with that since you were a child?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I have pretty intense scoliosis. And so, um, in fact, I just had a, a, an, a an adjustment yesterday and I, mm-hmm. I deal with it all the time. Um, and it is something that causes me quite a bit of pain. And I think a, a lot about mobility issues. I think about, um, if something's hard for me, I can't imagine if it's hard, if you don't have access, you know, to full, you know, if you, if you can't move around easily in this world, it, the world is much harder and it looks very different. And, uh, it's something that I keep in mind a lot, but I also am aware of trying to avoid some of the phrasing that makes me really, uh, Uncomfortable, which is like people will say, Oh, you were in chronic pain. And I'm like, Well, the only problem with the word chronic pain is that I would like to leave space for it not to be chronic. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I, like, can I just call it like sometimes I have a lot of pain and sometimes I don't? And I'd also like to leave space for maybe that someday it will all magically disappear. Mm. Um, so you know, I think a lot about language and the language of the body, but also that, you know, sometimes when you practice meditation which I do a lot of the wonderful teachers and guides will say you know now return to the body and I often mm-hmm. think but what if the body is really not happy <laughs> yeah, this right this a now? hard place for <laughs> me yeah. right and I think sometimes that's true we think you know oh no we have to get out of the mind but sometimes when you're an artist and you know sometimes the most free I feel is when I'm in the mind mm-hmm. and not in the body and I think that's an interesting thing for me to explore in my own writing yeah
2: you know, there's uh, another great poem, maybe the, at least the last poem I have queued up for you, um, which is yeah. really about this this great period of life in between being a kid and uh, being an elder. You know, this thing yeah. people call, call middle age, which has no official start and really no official end either. Um, the, the poem's called Salvage, um, yeah. and it's another, it, it also feels like a deeply regional poem as well because of the, mm-hmm. the tree involved.
3: Yeah. And I wrote this poem actually, um, about Moon Mountain in the Mayakamas. Um, and it was right after, uh, the 2017 fire, mm-hmm. uh, that burned quite a bit of the Mayakamas and in fact came close to burning the place where I got married right up there. Um, And and so this poem has a lot to do with, like you said, being in the middle of the middle of the middle. Um, (laughs) And then I think it also has to do with the climate crisis and, you know, what we see um, happening to our natural world around us. Salvage. On the top of Mount Pisgah, on the Western slope of the Mayakamas, there is a Madrone tree that's half burned from the fires half alive from nature's need to propagate. One side of her is black ash, and at her root is what looks like a cavity hollowed out by flame. On the other side, silvery green broad leaf shoots ascend toward the winter light, and her bark is a cross between a bay horse and a chestnut horse, red and velvety like the animal's neck she resembles. Staring at the tree for a long time now, I am reminded of the righteousness I had before the scorch of time. I miss who I was. I miss who we all were before we were this, half alive to the brightening sky, half dead already. I place my hand on the unscarred bark that is cool and unsullied, and because I cannot apologize to the tree, to my own self, I say, "I am sorry. I am sorry I have been so reckless with your life."
2: That was Salvage Italy Mon joining us this morning. Um, such a such a beautiful poem. And those trees, if you've people who've seen that bark, like it just you, you kind of can't get it out of your head. And I love the. The comparison there to the to the horse's neck, yeah,
3: um, they're the horses again. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, yeah, it's like you move to
2: Kentucky and suddenly,
3: um,
2: it's all horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it, this poem is also balanced like just so perfectly between climate change as desperate, horrible situation and the growth that just continues in spite of it all. Yeah. I, and it feels like so many of your poems are about holding those two things together.
3: Mm. Yeah, I think that's very true. I am very interested in, in what it is to, uh, to live in a moment of crisis. Um, but the key word there is live Mm. to live through it, right. Mm -hmm. To live, maybe even flourish. (laughs) Mm. You know, I think so much of our thought is, you know, how do we survive? And I would also like to think about how do we also flourish? And, um, you know, I think that it's, it's true for me as an artist right now that I want to be, um, I guess, wholeheartedly approaching my own work in terms of what's really going on, you know, the truth of our time. But also remember that we can't give up. Mm-hmm. To give up is to lose hope and, and to lose our planet, and we can't.
2: Yeah. And also, you know, what you've lost in this poem, By the Scorch, is is not an an alloyed good. I mean, righteousness is a is a complex, maybe useful thing, but it's not. It's not easy to have uh, to to be righteous uh,
3: mm-hmm.
2: for the people who are being righteous or those who who are feeling that that heat.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in that line, like you know, I, I miss my righteousness. I think that there was also that feeling like i had the answers and feeling like um like i was always right uh, and i think that as i age and change and watch the world change um i am you know the questions are just more and more mm-hmm. <laughs> i'm more for, full of questions than i am of answers yeah.
2: and you love growing things too i do love that in mm-hmm. in your poems your your garden growing and growing and, and changing yeah. and has that been like a real salve for you to, you know, the the world may have these issues, but on your plot, things are beautiful and green are happening.
3: Yeah. And sometimes they're not. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I think that, I think that for me, finding some refuge in the natural world uh, is really essential to remembering that I am part of nature as well and that, um, even my own mortalities is linked to the natural world and and the cycles of things, and I think there's a lot of peace in that, um, because it feels to me like nature is one of our greatest teachers. And if you're paying attention, you get all of those incredible lessons right there up front. And for me, uh, you know, I, I know that as a human being, I'm always trying to figure out, you know, my purpose, <laughs> my um, You know what? What is the point? All of the all of the big (laughs) questions that artists and human beings have been asking since the dawn of time, and Mm. uh, you know, and I think sometimes the answers are there, just watching the natural world, and that that answer is that that cycle.
2: No one watches better. We've been talking with Ada Limon, Sonoma native, twenty fourth poet laureate. Most recent book is The Hurting Kind. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of form ahead